Hey, I'm Dr. Michael Hunter, forensic pathologist from Autopsy, Reels Channel's medical mystery series on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to download the Podcast One app and subscribe. Then go to reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, to find more programs like this one on Reels Channel. The popular young rock singer Jimi Hendrix died today in London. Jimi Hendrix, electric guitar virtuoso, was one of the highest paid musicians in the world. Jimi Hendrix was the greatest guitar player who ever lived. Dazzling listeners with his riffs. Sometimes played with his teeth or behind his back, he was the ultimate guitar hero. He'd already made three records that sold over a million copies each. After his death on the 18th of September 1970, when he was just 27 years old, the coroner concluded that he died after breathing in his own vomit. But stating insufficient evidence of the circumstances, he returned an open verdict. Nearly half a century later, his death is still shrouded in mystery. Numerous conflicting accounts of his final hours have obscured the truth and fueled conspiracy theories about suicide and murder. Jimmy? Jimmy? The autopsy report of Jimi Hendrix concluded that he aspirated on vomit. Now, that's always been the legend of Jimi Hendrix's death. But is that actually what happened, and is that what killed him? Dr. Michael Hunter is a world-renowned forensic pathologist. He's performed over 4,000 autopsies to investigate and reveal the cause of death. Today, he's the chief medical examiner in one of America's biggest cities. This is Jimi Hendrix's autopsy report. And one thing that this report concludes is that Jimi Hendrix died aspirating on vomitous material. One thing you need to know about this report is it's very short. It's barely more than a page in length. The amount of information in here is very sparse, and I think it can also be misleading. So I don't buy this as a cause of death. I need to look at other possibilities for why Jimi Hendrix died. September 17, 1970, the day before Jimmy's death. Jimi Hendrix is on the U.K. leg of his European tour. He meets up with one of his many girlfriends, German photographer Monica Dannemann. Jimmy wants her to shoot photographs to use on his next album cover. According to Monica, Jimmy is tired of his wild man image and plans to show the real, sensitive Jimi Hendrix. Monica Dannemann, Jimi Hendrix's girlfriend. He wanted me to take these photos because he felt the image he got from, mm. from his management and record companies and the media was very, very wrong from the real Jimi Hendrix. She takes 29 color photos of him, posing with his cherished Fender Stratocaster, a China tea service, and a rose. These are the last photos that will ever be taken of him. And Monica Dannemann, will be the last person to see him alive. This report tells me that Jimi Hendrix is a muscular young man, that there's no evidence of 
injury on him. So I think early on in the investigation, we can pretty much rule out that there's inflicted trauma that resulted in the death of Jimi Hendrix. But these photographs may tell us another story. Although he looks physically strong, Jimmy's strained smiles reveal an emotionally troubled man. Dr. Linda Papadopoulos, psychologist. I think one of the interesting things about these photographs of, of Jimmy is that he, while he's, he's smiling, the, the upper part of his face, his eyes, his eyes aren't smiling, basically. Jimmy should have every reason to be happy. As this 1968 performance of Wild Thing shows, he was an experimental guitarist. Left-handed, he taught himself to play a right-handed guitar upside down. The sounds and effects that he produced set the gold standard of rock guitar skills. Filmmaker Tony Palmer saw this close up when he filmed this footage for his documentary. Tony Palmer, director, all my loving and friend. I don't think Hendrix ever played a chord. I mean, he was playing four different uh, melody lines with four different fingers. And I mean, it was extraordinary. There was nothing he couldn't do with the electric guitar. He was endlessly inventive, completely explosive about the way he played. But his onstage stunts were attracting all the attention. Jimmy was determined to focus on a new, serious direction for his music. Harry Shapiro, author, Jimi Hendrix, Electric Gypsy. I mean, he didn't want to be on stage biting guitars and setting fire to them and kicking the amps in. But, it, you know, it put bums on seats and helped sell records. Um, so the management were keen that he was going to stay in that vein. Jimmy hated the public image created for him and simply wanted to be known for his music. He found the adulation embarrassing. Embarrassing to him personally, embarrassing to what he did as a musician. You're considered one of the best guitar players in the world. Oh, um, no. <laughs> but he couldn't understand why people worship him in the way that they did. Well, one of the best in this studio, anyway. <laughs> How about some of the best sitting in this chair? How about yeah. That? Part of this, of course, had to do with his extremely poor background. Born Johnny Allen Hendricks on November 27th, 1942, in Seattle, he was the only child of an alcoholic father and a frequently absent teenage mother. When a child is, is little, it needs to feel that it has that sense of security, that they're worthy of love. If you look at Jimmy's life, um, the idea that he's, a, he's in effect uh, abandoned by arguably the most significant person in his life, his mother, will have been likely to have affected him. But Jimmy found refuge in music. In 1957, after seeing Elvis perform in Seattle, his father bought him his first guitar. By 1967, he was a household name. An experience for Jimi Hendrix retaining his title as the world's top musician. Morris Gibb of the Bee Gees doing the honors. I mean, Jimmy was the complete package. Uh, he, could, he could play better than anyone else. He could sing. He could write hit songs. Plus, he had the look, the clothes. He, he was the real deal. Women adored him. Blokes adored him. He was very sexual and very exotic. 
the 24th of August, 1970. Four weeks before his death, Jimmy's staying at the Londonderry Hotel in central London. His behavior is causing concern. In the adjoining room, former girlfriend Kathy Etchingham arrives to find two of Jimmy's friends, Angie Burden and Devin Wilson. I don't know, you just went crazy and just chucked us out. They had spent the night with Jimmy, but come the morning, he turfed them out, stark naked. In Jimmy's bedroom, Kathy has other concerns. What's been going on? The room is stifling. But feeling cold and shivery, Jimmy turns up the heating. Here in the autopsy report, he has a markedly dilated right side of his heart. The question is why. Now, he's in a very warm room, but he's cold. And that may suggest that he has either a fever or possibly an infection. September 2nd, 1970. Two weeks before his death, Jimmy is performing in Aarhus, Denmark. Recently, he's been complaining about a cold that he can't shake off. Unusually, he's out of tune and forgets his lyrics. During his third song, he's carried back to his dressing room, exhausted and feverish. Is he suffering from rheumatic fever? Jimmy may have been suffering from an infection that led to rheumatic fever, and that can lead to serious heart problems. In more severe cases of rheumatic fever, the heart can become so damaged that it cannot pump blood around the body. This can lead to a shortage of oxygen, heart failure, and potentially to death. To diagnose rheumatic fever, you need to look carefully at the heart. You want to look at the heart valves and see if there are irregularities and inflammation, and you want to look at the heart muscle. And in this particular case, those are absolutely normal, so I think I can rule out rheumatic fever. It's possible, given Jimmy's symptoms, that the dilation we see with his heart is a response to a viral infection. Was Jimi Hendrix another victim of a deadly pandemic that by 1970 had already killed over three million people? Or was he a victim of murder? Jimi Hendrix wanted to get out of London because he feared for his life. September 18, 1970. 27-year-old Jimi Hendrix is found dead in the Samarkand Hotel in central London. The autopsy concludes that he asphyxiates on vomit when intoxicated. Now, leading forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter is using modern medical knowledge to investigate that conclusion. This is a transcript of Jimi Hendrix's autopsy report, and it shows that he has a markedly dilated right side of his heart. But looking at the heart muscle and the heart valves, there is nothing to suggest that he has an abnormality that leads to either heart failure or puts him at risk of sudden cardiac arrest. But this dilation might be a marker for a deadly infection. Throughout his European tour, Jimmy had been complaining of cold and fevers. Hospitals in London and many parts of the country have been sending out a desperate plea for help. 
1970, a deadly virus known as Hong Kong flu struck the British capital. The flu virus attacks the respiratory system. Mucus builds up in the lining of the nose, the throat, and the sinuses to fight infection. If this reaches the lungs, it can cause pneumonia, which, left untreated, can be fatal. For me to diagnose pneumonia, I take cultures of the lungs and look at the lungs microscopically. Those were not done in this particular case, but someone who has an active pneumonia would likely be hospitalized. So I think we can rule out pneumonia as a possible cause. So now I'm turning my attention to something else that can cause this dilation we're seeing in the heart, drugs. Jimmy was a huge, huge uh, drug merchant. He, he would take pills, he, uh, he would uh, smoke dope, he would take cocaine, he would take everything, really. He was a professional, <laughs> professional drug taker. Jimmy was catapulted into the drug-fueled world of rock and roll in 1966. When he was discovered by Chaz Chandler, bass player of the rock group The Animals. That's where we first met him, when, and Chaz signed him up that night, and we had him in England a month later. In 1967, the Jimi Hendrix Experience was formed in the UK, and singles Purple Haze and Voodoo Child shot to the top of the charts. Chaz would take Jimmy into the studio, and without drugs, they wouldn't have got out the sounds they achieved. Jimmy was able to play the guitar better on drugs than off drugs. The drug fueling Jimmy's style of psychedelic rock music was lysergic acid diethylamide, or the hallucinogenic drug known as LSD. But at just this moment, neither he nor I know the direction or destination of the trip we're about to take together. He told me that he experienced with drugs um, at an earlier stage, but uh, not with heavy drugs like heroin, LSD he took, because at that time people thought it would expand your mind and it would, um, your spiritual, uh, because he was a very, very spiritual man. The autopsy report shows no evidence of LSD in Jimmy's body at the time that he dies. So LSD is unlikely to have played any role whatsoever in his death. LSD acts on perception and not on physiology. So I think we can rule out LSD as a cause of death. In 1969, a year before his death, Jimmy was arrested at Toronto Airport and charged with heroin possession. He was later cleared, but the incident provoked rumors that Jimmy was a heroin user. Heroin is a known killer, and in the 70s, it usually was injected. And because of those injections, you typically would see on the body track marks in the crook of the arm, and you don't see that in Jimmy. Also, when you look at the toxicology, there's no evidence that there is morphine in his system at the time that he dies. Morphine is the breakdown product of heroin that we see in heroin abusers. And the fact that it's not there, I think we can rule out heroin as a cause of death. But by 1970, as Jimmy's reputation grows and the demands of his rock and roll career intensifies, he has come to depend on cocaine. That, that was a bad cocaine period for Jimmy. Trying to be creative. Cocaine is not 
a drug for creativity or inspiration. It's almost like a drug for sort of getting through the day, really. To confirm cocaine use, I'm looking for cocaine or benzalecanine, which is the breakdown product of cocaine in either his blood or his urine, and it was not present. So he didn't take cocaine in the hours leading to his death. But the autopsy report does show that he has 46 milligrams per 100 milliliters of alcohol in his urine. Five p.m. September seventeenth, nineteen seventy, the day before Jimmy's death. Jimmy is at an impromptu party in central London. He barely knows the other people, but he's relaxed and friendly. And according to party host Philip Harvey, he's drinking red wine. Don't think alcohol agrees with Jimmy much anyway. There's nobody's given many accounts of Jimmy actually being drunk. I don't really think that was... He didn't really do that. But today, Jimmy is drinking much more than usual. He's at the party with current girlfriend Monica Danneman. The daughter of a rich German industrialist, she later claims that she and Jimmy are about to become engaged. Tappy Wright, Jimmy's road manager, witnessed the strange relationship between Jimmy and Monica. Monica Danneman was a very... Uh, she was a strange girl. She was obsessed with Jimi Hendrix. To Jimmy, it was... It was somebody that he could go home at night and sleep with, you know. She thought she was going to marry him and have babies. Other accounts confirm that Jimmy had no plans to settle down with Monica. Wherever he went, women followed. His sexual appetites and adventures were legendary. I have been out with Jimi Hendrix uh, to somewhere like the Bag and Nails, which was a big nightclub in the, in the 60s in London. Uh, I've seen him... Uh, have five different women in one night. I really dig her, you know, she's really nice looking, you know. So I said, oh, well, I'll probably stand there, and then there I go, I'll be biting into an apple, maybe, or something, you know. <laughs> At the party on the afternoon before his death, Jimmy's charm is working. He chats to two young girls who are succumbing to his sexual charisma, while Monica is getting increasingly jealous. All the way through that afternoon and into the evening, Monica didn't want Jimmy to be with anyone else. It, it just wound her up. Feeling stressed and suffocated by Monica, he's drinking heavily. Toxicology shows that Jimmy had been drinking prior to his death. He has 46 milligram percent of alcohol in his urine, and he's got 5 milligrams percent in his blood. Those are very low levels. So I think if he is intoxicated, we have to find a different culprit. There is another clue here. There is a quantity of amphetamine identified in his urine. September 18, 1970, 2.30 in the morning, the day of Jimmy's death. Jimmy has given Monica the slip. Desperate to be free of her, he's left her at the Samarkand Hotel and goes to another party. 
Having spent the afternoon and evening drinking and feeling stressed and exhausted, Jimmy is entering the last hours of his life. I think Jimmy was in a, a kind of eye of the storm, really. And that, some of that storm that was swirling around him were people who were really not very nice people at all. Jimmy is now with his familiar entourage, including former girlfriend Devon Wilson, one of the women he threw out of his hotel bedroom four weeks earlier. If I had to describe the relationship between Devon Wilson and Jimmy Hendrix, she was his pimp. She would take some drugs along and, and a couple of women, and uh, he was happy. According to later investigations, it's Devon who supplies Jimmy with the amphetamine. Amphetamine is a potent central nervous system stimulant. It works by increasing neurotransmitter activity in the brain to increase libido, wakefulness, and euphoria. The forensic evidence backs this up. The autopsy report mentions the presence of Durafet, and in the 60s, Durafet was sold on the street as Black Bomber. Jimmy is mixing both alcohol and amphetamines, which can lead to a drug-induced haze, severely impairing his judgment. We used to go mad with Jimmy because we used to say, you know, Jimmy, at the end of the day, you don't know what you're getting off these people. It could, it could kill you. An autopsy not only reveals how a person died, but how they lived. I'm Dr. Michael Hunter. If you like what you're hearing, check out more dark mysteries on your TV on Reels channel. There are shocking real-life and death stories in world's most evil killers, like the quiet neighbor nicknamed the Scorpion after he bludgeoned nine women to death with a hammer, and Rodney Alcala, the serial murderer best known as the dating game killer. Then check out the latest episodes of Autopsy that reveal what really killed screen and music legends like Walt Disney, Tom Petty, David Cassidy, and Batman's Adam West. You can find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. Then check the top of the screen to find Reels in your area. On September 18th, 1970, Jimi Hendrix is found dead in the Samarkand Hotel in Notting Hill, London. Dr. Michael Hunter has been examining the autopsy report, which concluded that Jimmy died of asphyxiation on vomit when intoxicated. Jimmy Hendrix is a known drug user, but I know that he wasn't taking LSD, heroin, or cocaine in the hours leading up to his death. But there were traces of other intoxicants in his body. At an impromptu party the night before his death, tensions between Jimmy and girlfriend Monica Daneman were rising. He smoked and drank red wine until they both left around 10.30 p.m. By 2.30 on the morning of his death, he's left Monica to go to another party where he has taken an amphetamine known as a black bomber. Our knowledge of what drugs could do to the body, especially when mixed with alcohol, then was utterly inadequate. We had really no idea. We didn't know that if you drink and you take drugs, you're probably in trouble. Where is he going? 
At three in the morning, Jimmy goes back to Monica's hotel, the Samarkand in Notting Hill. From this point on, we have only Monica Danneman's account of the final hours of Jimi Hendrix's life. 3.30 in the morning. Monica says she makes a meal that Jimmy doesn't eat. At some point, he works on lines to a song or a poem. They stay up till 4 a.m., when Monica eventually falls asleep. There's only two people who know exactly what happened. Sadly, both of them are dead. Somewhere between 9 and 10, on the morning of September 18th, 1970, Jimmy? Monica Danneman wakes up. She can't wake Jimmy. Jimmy? But says that he's still breathing. Jimmy? Jimmy? She notices that he's vomited. Panicking, she calls his friends. There's something wrong with Jimmy. Who persuade her to call an ambulance. At 11.18, a call to the ambulance service from the Samarkand Hotel is officially logged. Hello, can you hear me? Can you open your eyes for me? This is the paramedics. When they arrive, the ambulance men try to resuscitate Jimmy. At 12.45, Jimmy is admitted to St. Mary Abbott's Hospital. The attending doctor, finding no heartbeat and no pulse, declares that he is dead. The popular young rock singer Jimi Hendrix died today in London. James Tappy Wright, Jimmy's road manager. I was in my lawyer's when my driver came in and he says, there's no hurry, he's dead. And I said, who's dead? He says, Jimi Hendrix. I says, get out of here, what do you mean, he's dead? He says, he's dead. 27 years old, he's dead. He'd already made three records that sold over a million copies each, and his harsh voice and throbbing electric guitar were major attractions around the world. I remember listening to the radio in complete disbelief, complete shock, that this power, this life force, had been cut off. You know, somebody turned the light off. I didn't know how, I didn't know why. The official conclusion of Jimi Hendrix's autopsy was that he died of asphyxiation on vomit while intoxicated. But the coroner returned an open verdict. So I've closely examined this autopsy report, and there's nothing to justify a conclusion that Jimmy, at this point, was either intoxicated or had actually asphyxiated on his vomit. But I've been looking at this statement made by the emergency room physician who took care of Jimmy in the hospital. And he does mention that there's a considerable amount of alcohol in his pharynx and larynx, meaning that there's a considerable amount of alcohol in his throat. This is a perplexing statement, and it's fueled this disturbing theory that Jimi Hendrix had been murdered. During Jimi's European tour, 
Tensions between him and his manager Michael Jeffries were rising. Jeffries wanted Jimmy on the road earning ticket sales. Road manager Tappy Wright witnessed the breakdown of the relationship. There was a big argument from between Mike Jeffries and Jimi Hendrix as to which way his music should go. Jimmy, Jimmy wanted it as like an artist thing. He wanted to even change the music a little bit. And Mike Jeffries says, no, you can't. It's got to stay as it is because that's a winning format. September 17th, the day before Jimmy's death. Witnesses at the Cumberland Hotel where Jimmy had a room report that he returns to make a number of calls. Yes, Jimmy. One of these is to his American lawyer, who he shares with Mike Jeffries. Jimmy has made a decision. He's going to leave Jeffries. Not only did Jimmy instruct lawyers to draw up papers to annul the, the management contract, but he'd also uh, taken Mike Jeffries to, to court in New York for embezzlement. Jimi Hendrix was Mike Jeffries' only source of money. He could do all sorts of deals because of Jimi Hendrix. He was probably the biggest artist in America. So without Jimi Hendrix, Mike Jeffries would have been bankrupt, basically. Jeffries had borrowed money to buy and convert a club into a recording studio in New York City. With his debts mounting and a lucrative insurance policy in place, Theorists insist that he had a motive to murder Jimmy. Rod Weinberg, co-author, Rock Roadie. Mike Jeffries told me that um, how he did it was he and a couple of friends had uh, used an old army trick, which it, it's kind of called waterboarding now. You can pour liquid straight into the lungs and it drowns the person. And this is, this is how they killed Jimi Hendrix. This might account for the alcohol in Jimmy's throat that the hospital doctor noted. Any murder claim, especially one as sensational as this, needs to be taken very seriously. If alcohol had been forced down his throat, I would have expected to see signs of struggle, injuries on his body. I would have also expected to see alcohol in his stomach and an elevated alcohol level in the blood, which we do not see. I think there is another explanation to account for the doctor's observations. During and after death, gases can force gastric fluids out of the gut and into the lungs. Any pressure imposed on the body even movement could force the liquid out of the lungs and into the throat. I think it's this liquid and not alcohol that the ER physician witnessed. 45 years ago, I think he made a mistake. Our knowledge is much more detailed now. For this reason and the lack of injuries or increased alcohol in his system, we can discount murder. London's Metropolitan Police had investigated Jimi Hendrix's death, but never charged anyone with a crime. After Tappy Wright's allegations were published in 2009, the case was not reopened. But at the inquest, the coroner raised the question of suicide. Is it possible that Jimi Hendrix took his own life? 
there were all sorts of pressures and I think they were playing on his mind at that time. 18th of September, 1970. Jimi Hendrix was found dead in the Samarkand Hotel in Notting Hill, London. Dr. Michael Hunter is investigating the autopsy report, which concluded that he asphyxiated on vomit when intoxicated. I've been examining the autopsy report and the toxicology report to ascertain the death of Jimi Hendrix. So far, I'm not seeing a natural cause. I'm not seeing uh, evidence that there was a homicidal act. I'm not seeing an intoxicated state at this point that explains his death. As I look into the autopsy report, I notice that there is the drug quinobarbitone identified in the urine. Now, quinobarbitone is a barbiturate, a very powerful sedative, and it was used primarily in the 60s and the 70s as a sleeping aid. According to her own evidence, Monica Danneman was using a prescribed German brand of sleeping tablet called Vesperax. In the small hours on the day of Jimmy's death, she takes one. The main component of Vesperax is quinobarbitone, and that's what was found in Jimmy's blood. When you're a musician, you're not working nine to five. You don't have normal hours. When you have to perform, you have to be up and you've got to perform and be awake on demand. Likewise, you need to be asleep on demand because maybe, you know, we finish a gig, we finish at three in the morning, but, you know, you're on some show at 9 a.m. So you've got those, those five, six hours to, to sleep. If you can't sleep, then you can't perform. So what ended up happening is that, you know, one's normal bodily function of sleeping and waking would be outsourced. <laughs> I'm going to turn to drugs. In the early hours, Jimmy takes a number of Vesperax himself. During a search of the room later that day, an empty blister pack of Vesperax and a stray tablet are found near where Jimmy lay. Every package of Vesperax has 10 pills. There is one identified on scene, so it's likely Jimmy could have taken up to nine pills. The coroner who oversaw the initial investigation in 1970 brought up the possibility that Jimmy took these medications in a deliberate attempt to cause his death. Is this a suicide? The atmosphere uh, towards the end was, wasn't really good at all. You could tell that he was not the same Jimmy as, as we all know him to be, fun-loving and everything. He was an unhappy person. At some point, in the hours before his death, Jimmy had written a poem, The Story of Life. The next day, Jimmy's friend, the singer Eric Burden, finds the poem. The final line is a bleak take on the end of love. Eric was convinced that Jimmy had committed suicide. Eric had uh, seen these lyrics, or were they lyrics? Eric obviously thought it was a suicide note, written in the form of a poem. Soon after, Burden announces that Jimmy has committed suicide. At the time of his death, Jimmy was facing two paternity suits and trying to juggle the demands of a turbulent and promiscuous love life. Monica Danneman was claiming that they were about to become engaged, but she was only one of several girlfriends that Jimmy was having to please. 
And that wasn't all. After a series of disappointing gigs on his European tour, Jimmy was despondent and rambling during press interviews. He remarked to one journalist that he's not sure he'll live to be 28. He looked very, very tired. Tired because of uh, physical exhaustion, tired because of the constant pressure of being expected to deliver something extraordinary. And I think he just, he was backing away from that as rapidly as he could. There were other pressures on him, which I didn't know at the time. The family, difficulties with his management, difficulties with his record company. It was just all crowding in on him at the same time. But were these the reflections of someone who was suicidal? Many times in our life, we, you know, we actually rise up out of a pain, rise up out of adversity, and that's what gives us the, the impetus, the, the momentum to, to make changes. So the idea that because Jimmy had been going through a rough period, that it was inevitable that he, you know, that he would stay down, it was inevitable that he'd be depressed, it isn't true. Witness accounts from the party that he attended the day before his death describe how optimistic he was about the future. I've read ridiculous rumours and reports and first-hand accounts that uh, it was suicide. I think that's absolute nonsense. I think he loved life. He loved women. He loved alcohol. He loved playing. He loved music. He loved everything. To excess, that was part of the problem. So if he didn't want to take his own life, why did he take nine tablets? At the time, UK sleeping pills were much weaker than German Vesperax. Is it possible that Jimmy was just desperate to sleep? This had happened previously uh, on the European tour uh, when he'd been feeling really bad and just swallowed a load of pills, sleeping tablets with, with, with red wine because he was feeling just depressed and miserable. Now, some people have extrapolated that that was some sort of suicide attempt, but, but there is no evidence for that. It was, it was probably just a way of shutting the world out. Jimmy was clearly stressed, he was unhappy, and he was certainly concerned about his music. But there is nothing else about him or the scene that suggests he intended to kill himself. I'm getting closer to figuring out the cause of Jimmy's death, but I also want to know why the autopsy report concluded that he aspirated on his vomit. September 18th, 1970. Jimi Hendrix died in London at just 27 years old. Dr. Michael Hunter is investigating the autopsy report and the circumstances surrounding Jimmy's death. He's already discounted murder and suicide, but he knows that Jimmy has been drinking alcohol and has taken Monica Daneman's strong barbiturate-based sleeping tablets. The autopsy report of Jimi Hendrix concluded that he aspirated on vomit. Now, that's always been the legend of Jimi Hendrix's death, but is that actually what happened, and is that what killed him? 3.30 a.m., September 18th, 1970. After returning to the Samarkand Hotel, Jimmy is wired from the stimulant effects of taking an amphetamine black bomber. He can't sleep. He's seen Monica Daneman take a Vesperac sleeping tablet and decides to follow suit. 
And the interesting thing is, at that time, it's very likely that sedatives were prescribed. So the whole notion of them being dangerous wouldn't have even occurred to people taking them in the 1970s. This is something my doctor's given me to be able to relax. Surely, it can't do any harm. And that was, a, that was a scary thing, I guess, at that time. Vesperax, which contains the barbiturate quinobarbitone, is twice as strong as other sleeping tablets. So, for example, if he took eight or nine of these tablets, that's many times the recommended dosage for this medication. Well, I don't think Jimmy would have been aware of dosages generally. I think he would have thought, as many people would have thought, in terms of numbers of pills. You know, one pill will make you drowsy. If you really want to knock yourself out, you take more. And I, I don't think it would have been any more sophisticated than that. To understand what happened here, I think you have to follow the medical consequences of taking this extreme amount of Vesperax. As Jimmy sleeps, the barbiturate in Vesperax is absorbed into Jimmy's blood and his breathing slows down. I think now I'm getting closer to understanding the truth. The toxicology report shows that he has a very considerable amount of quinobarbitone in his system. He has 0.7 milligrams percent in his blood and he's got 3.9 milligrams percent in his liver. That is a very high level and it's potentially lethal. As Jimmy's breathing slows down even further, his heart beats faster to pump more oxygen, carrying blood around his body. As oxygen levels in his lungs drop, fluid builds up, causing pulmonary edema. He's currently in a downward spiral, and his oxygen levels are dropping. That's going to worsen his respiratory failure over time. As a result, the pulmonary edema builds up and Jimmy's brain and heart are starved of oxygen. Soon after, he lapses into a coma and dies. Jimmy? Jimmy! Jimmy! I have no doubt that Vesperax is what killed Jimmy. His aspiration on his vomit is not the reason why he's died. Jimmy did aspirate some vomit, but only when his brain was already irreparably and fatally damaged. Jimi Hendrix died not as a result of him choking on vomit, but of polydrug toxicity. The drugs he had in his system, primarily that of quinobarbitone, led ultimately to his respiratory failure and his death. As far as I'm concerned, it was a horrible, tragic accident. Uh, and the year Jimmy died, in the UK, a thousand people died in a very similar way through an accidental barbiturate overdose. Jimmy's body was flown to his hometown of Seattle, Washington, and buried on the 1st of October, 1970. Quite often the, uh, the candle that burns the brightest burns the shortest. Jimmy was, Hendrix was undoubtedly the most influential uh, 
contemporary music performer of the 20th century, no doubt. I still miss Jimi Hendrix very much because it's not so much as a... He still feels... I still feel like he's here because I can't pick up a, a magazine. I get emails and texts and everything. It's always Jimmy, 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 Jimmy. The world is such a poorer place without Jimmy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autopsy. Don't forget to subscribe at podcastone.com with the Podcast One app or at Apple Podcasts. Then go to reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, for clips, extras, and more from the TV version of the series, including reenactments and autopsy photos you'll only see on Reels' channel. Find Reels on your TV at reels.com. I'm Dr. Michael Hunter.